you so much for joining us this week at Zion City Church with teachings from Pastor Andrew Rael. We believe that God still speaks through His Word and His people. So right now, lean in and listen to the Holy Spirit. We hope that this message encourages you, inspires you, and brings you into a deeper love and worship of Jesus. Thanks for listening, and thanks for being a part of Zion City Church. Exiles and Empires. And we got a lot ahead of us today. We have to go through two chapters, four and five. So you buckled in. We got a lot to go through. So please hang with me and uh, we'll have a good time. But before we get started there, each of us have people in our lives who I like to call conversational black holes. And it is so that when you're around them, no matter what the conversation is, what you're talking about, the conversation suddenly is brought into the vortex of themselves and it becomes about them, right? You know these people as the one-uppers, right? If you said, oh my gosh, we had such a lovely dinner this weekend, you know, my husband made steaks and it was such a good time and oh, you had a lovely dinner. I had, you know, uh, pasta from Italy and fine-aged wine that's 85 years old or whatever, right? They always have to one-up or, you know, we had such a lovely vacation vacation. You know, we went to the lake and the kids rode the jet skis and stuff. Oh, you had a lovely vacation. Well, we were in Cabo for two weeks or whatever. It's like they're always doing the one-upping stories. You know the kind. They are the story hijackers, right? If you're there telling a story about something that's happened, something that's going on, suddenly they take over the story and then they don't let anyone else talk. And suddenly everyone around them is just listening to this person go on and on and on. Everyone's kind of giving each other the look like this person just totally came in, stole the conversation and has yet to leave. We all know those people who think that they're God's gift to earth, right? If you go and you work out at the gym, you've seen them. You know what I mean? They're there. They're the ones looking at themselves in the mirror as if they are the gift, and you are blessed to be in their presence, you know? They're there flexing at any possible moment just to show you, look at this chiseled physique, right? I'm God's gift to earth. Or the people who have a picture of themselves as their home screen. That's a problem that we have to talk about, okay? It comes already with pre-installed home screens. So if there's not one that really sticks out to you, you can choose one of those. But to go to the place to say, the one thing I want to see all the time when I look at my phone is me. That's a problem, and we have to talk about that, right? And if you go through their camera roll, right, it's not photos of the mountains or kiddos or the food that they ate. It's just them and more of them and more of them from different angles, right? You know the kind. Or we have those others who think that they are the self-righteous moral police in the world, right? That anytime something is brought up or something is shared that you, you, you express a struggle or a concern that you have and they are there to remind you of their great devotion. You know, I've been really wrestling to pray. Yeah, well, I've just never struggled with that. You know, I just get up at 3 a.m. before the sun rises and pray for six and a half hours before I go to work and so I don't know the struggle. You're, oh, okay, you know, right? Are there those who are critical of every decision that is made, you know? Oh, we went and watched a movie. Oh, you guys do that? We would never do that. We don't believe in movies. We think those are strictly satanic, right? You know the kind. And what kind of taste does that leave in your mouth after an interaction with him? Do you just like, man, I just want to hang out with those people more. They just seem like people that I just want to spend time around, move in, come hang out, kick your feet up, let's hang. No, it leaves a bad taste in your mouth. Because what we are experiencing there is pride. This morning we're going to be taking a look at two examples of pride. 
One who chooses to humble themselves and the other who chooses to not humble themselves and the consequences of those actions. And then we're going to be talking about the greater heart posture as uh, followers of Jesus, that if we are to be a creative minority, then our call is to take on the posture of humility. So like I said, we have a lot of text to go through, so we're actually going to go through the passages together. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there's going to be some on the screen for you. If you need a Bible, actually raise your hand, and we can get you one if you possibly need one. If not, we're all good? Cool. So we're going to be going through chapters 4 and chapters 5 today, and we're going to be moving, moving kind of quickly, so hang on tight. Verse 1 in chapter 4. King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs and how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came to my presence, and I told him the dream. He is called Belteshazzar after the name of my God, and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. I said, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream, interpret it for me. These are the visions I saw while lying in my bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous, and the tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky, and it was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. And under it, wild animals found shelter, and birds lived in branches, and from, every, and from it, every creature was fed. In the visions I saw while lying in bed, I looked, and there before me came a holy one, a messenger, coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, cut down the tree and trim off its branches, strip its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the bird from its branches, but let the stump and its roots bound with iron and bronze remain in the ground and the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times passes, pass by, for seven times pass by for him. The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living one, so that the living may know that the most high is sovereign over all kingdoms on the earth and gives them to anyone who he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of people. That is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belteshazzar, tell me what the dream means for no one of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me, but you can because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. So a brief recap. So, uh, Daniel and his friends have been exiled out of Israel and they've come to serve underneath the king, King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, if we know anything about the king, he's unstable to say the least. And over the last several uh, months and years of his life, God has been coming to him in forms of dreams and visions, right? And he keeps having Daniel and his friends interpret these dreams and all these dreams have a common thread. Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's the greatest thing, the greatest gift on earth, right? He is the ruler. He thinks that he is a god, and all these dreams that come to him are saying, Nebuchadnezzar, 
this is not the case. This is not the case. And God has been gracious with him and has been coming to him in these forms of messengers saying, Nebuchadnezzar, you must change your ways. You must humble yourself. And so another dream happens for Nebuchadnezzar, and the dream is such that it terrifies him, it scares him. And so he brings in all of his, you know, religious counsel to come and to tell him what the dream means. And nobody can tell him what the dream means. I don't know, dude, you had a bad taco. I don't know what to tell you, you know. They don't really know how to interpret the dream for him. And so Nebuchadnezzar knows that there's one man who can do it, it's Daniel. He's been the one that's been able to crack all these dream codes that I've been having. So he brings in and he tells Daniel the dream, and this is the dream. He has this vision of this massive tree, this tree that reaches as far as the sky can go. The, the tree is enormous, and this tree is fruitful, that there is just an abundance of fruit in life teeming at the seams of this tree, and that every animal and everything that can come around it can be fed by it, right? It's a source of life. And suddenly, a messenger from heaven comes down and says, cut down that tree. Cut its branches, cut it out, and just leave it, just a stump. A stump so part of it can grow back again, but it's never going to be the same. And he says, what the heck does this dream mean? Watch what Daniel says, verse 19. Then Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, was greatly perplexed at the time, and his thoughts terrified him. So this king said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Belteshazzar said, my lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong, with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the wild animals, and having nesting places in its branches for the birds. Your majesty, you are the tree. You have become great and strong, and your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky, and your dominion extends to the distant parts of the earth. Your majesty saw a holy one. A messenger coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave a stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field. And while its roots remain in the ground, let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation, your majesty. And this is the decree the Most High has issued against you, against my Lord, the King. You will be driven away from the people and you will live with the wild animals and you will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge the most highest sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree and its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when, you're, when you acknowledge the heaven, that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed that, they may con that, they, that it may be that they that then your prosperity will continue. It's been a week, guys. So uh, Daniel explains the dream to the king. He says, king, you're the tree, and God's going to cut you down if you don't humble yourself. So if you don't humble yourself, he says, God's going to cut you down. And he says that, that in some way, shape, or form, the king will be like an animal, like a beast of the field, and um, we'll see exactly what that means here shortly. But the warning is, humble yourself. If you do not humble yourself, you will be humbled. And the things that you hold so dearly to you, you will lose. And so Daniel says, please, king, listen, humble yourself. He says, repent of your sins, renounce your sins, turn away from them, be kind to the oppressed, stop living the way that you have been. Let's see if the king listens. Verse 28, all this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, is this not the great Babylon? I have built as the royal residence, 
by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people, and you will live in the, with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth and gives to them anyone he wishes. Immediately, immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from the people, ate grass like an ox, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. At the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? And it was at this time that my sanity was restored. My honor and splendor were returned to me and for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. So here's what happens, right? Daniel says, king, humble yourself. A year passes by and there he is on the balcony. He says, man, I've built such a great place. Look how awesome I am. And everything is about me. You know, he's just thinking everything is all about him. And I did all this hard work. I made all this happen. It's for my glory. And it's for my majesty. And at that moment, the scripture says, as they were coming off his lips, a messenger proclaimed from heaven, King Nebuchadnezzar, we warned you about this, right? Now you're going to be like the beast of the field. Now what's really funny is a lot of scholars tried to define what kind of mental condition Nebuchadnezzar was in when he was acting like a beast of the field. So suddenly, he became like a beast. So he's there, like eating the, eating the grass and is not like sane anymore. His, his fingernails have grown super long. His hair has gotten super long. He's just out living in the wilderness like a wild man, right? The one guy who was once king and put together and nice and had everything is now living like a savage out in the middle of nowhere, right? Like uh, an animal, and I've heard Bible scholars try to talk about what kind of condition this was in and what kind of trauma or whatever. And it's like, dude, it's nothing that's in our paradigm, right? He's acting like an animal. He's acting like a beast, right? But this was God's warning to Nebuchadnezzar if he did not humble himself. But there was a set time in which uh, Nebuchadnezzar would have to endure this. And at the end of that time, Nebuchadnezzar was humbled. He realized the error of his ways. And then notice what he says there. His dominion, speaking to God, your dominion is an eternal dominion. Your kingdom endures forever. All the people of the earth are as nothing. You do whatever you please with the powers of heaven and the people of the earth. And no one can say to his hand, what have you done? Nebuchadnezzar is humbled. His mind has been changed because he realizes he's not all that in control of his life. That in a moment's notice, when you're at the top of everything, suddenly everything could be taken away. And he says, this God who Daniel serves is the one who is above it all, not me, not anything that I could bring to the table. Now, in chapter 5, we're going to be taking a look at his son, and I want to go through these together because the Bible, remember, okay, one thing, the scriptures were not written with chapters and verses, so that's not really there. But these two are meant to be paralleled with each other as kind of two stories of how kings learn to be humble, really a tale of two kings. And so buckle up, round two, 
Chapter 5 is a little bit shorter. You hanging in there? You're surviving? I see some eyes glazing over. <laughs> Chapter 5, verse 1. King Belteshazzar gave a great banquet for thousands of nobles. Belshazzar is Nebuchadnezzar's son. Gave a great banquet for thousands of his nobles and drank wine with him. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets from Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Really quick pause. These were like ceremonial uh, cups that the uh, people of Israel would use in worship. And so this is kind of just like, I'll use what is most sacred to you as just party favors for my people as we party together and you be able to drink with. Moving on. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles and his wives and his concubines drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze and iron, wood and stone. And suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched as the hand wrote. His face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. There's not a lot of commentary there, but I just think that's funny, that phrase, the knees were knocking, that he was so scared. Moving on. The king summoned the enchanters, astrologers, diviners, and then he said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads the writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck, and he will be made the highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified and his face grew pale. His nobles were baffled. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. And this time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father Nebuchadnezzar appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding, and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. So brief pause. Get out of Bible study mode for a moment. There's a big party going on, right? We got these new goblets from, you know, this is what the Israelite people worship out of, and these are our party favors. These are our red solo cups, right? This is how we're partying. And suddenly as the partying goes on, and there's a lot of contention. None of us were there, so none of us are sure. But somehow, writing starts to come down on the plaster of the wall, like with a human hand. What does that mean? I don't know. We weren't there. But this is all we need to know. Something so spooky and freaky that everyone starts freaking out. Everyone's pale. People are passing out. The king's knees are knocking, right? It's a freaky scene. And what's being written on the wall, nobody knows. This is Twilight Zone, okay? They're freaking out. So they start calling in any religious person, no matter what God you worship, come in here, tell us what the heck has been written here. And all of them are like, I don't know. You know, they have no idea what's on the wall. And so the king even gets more panicked because some spooky ghost creepy thing is just writing on my wall and nobody knows what the heck it means. And so the king's wife comes in, the queen, and she's like, hey, guess what? There's a story about this guy, Daniel. A great amount of time has passed. King Nebuchadnezzar has died. Belshazzar has come into the throne. And there's like, there's this guy, uh, Daniel. He used to like know a bunch of stuff about like spiritual things. And anytime your dad would have a bad dream, he knew what it meant. Let me call him and give him a call. Like, don't freak out. Let's give this guy a shot. Verse 13. 
So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father, the king, brought from Judah? I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing on the wall and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing, tell me what it means. You will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you will be made the third highest in the kingdom." Then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it says. Tell him what it means. Your majesty, verse 18, the most high God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. And because of high positions he gave him, all the nations and people of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. And those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted, and those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was, dispo- he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived while- with the wild donkeys and ate grass like an ox. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all the kingdom on- kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes." But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself. Though you knew all of this, instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You have had goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles and your wives and your concubines drank from them, and you praised the God of, gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron, wood and stone. A lot of lists here, guys. Um, which cannot see or hear or understand, but you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life. And all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote an inscription. This is what the inscription that was written. Mene, mene, tekel, parsin. Here's what the words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and has brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and been found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then at Belteshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple, a gold chain was put around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. But that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. You just went through two chapters of scripture. How do you feel? Yeah, yeah, yeah. A little bit crazy, a little bit fun. So, crazy stuff happening here. But this is essentially two stories about two kings. One, Nebuchadnezzar. God comes to him, says, humble yourself. Nebuchadnezzar's like, no, I'm good. God humbles him, right? Realizes the error of his ways and turns and repents and says, I was wrong. I need to make these things right. I'm not the king of the universe. I don't have it all together. The next king, his son, was even more arrogant than his father. So much so that he did not want to learn from the mistakes of the past. Did not want to learn from the things of his father. Belteshazzar surely knew there was that one summer where dad was just out (laughs) in the middle of nowhere where his hair grew long and his nails grew long and he was like an animal. It's not like he was unaware that these things were happening. He lived in the same house, you know. He knew what was happening, but he refused to be humble in the same way. He refused to learn from the people who had gone before him. And so in his refusal and his defiance and his disrespect to the God of Israel by bringing in the goblets and drinking from them like there's red solo cups or whatever, it brings his destruction. And the tale of these two kings, the defining marker was that one learned humility and the other did not. In our culture today, pride is celebrated, encouraged, and honestly overlooked. 
Regardless of how hurtful, ugly, or damaging it is, pride is celebrated. And if you're honest, pride is at the center of the issues in your life. Now, if you're here thinking, this message is not for me, this message is about people who are proud, this message is for you, right? If you don't think that you struggle with pride, it's a key sign you probably struggle with pride. It's in the heart of every person being proud. And if we get to the center of all the issues that are life, at the center of them all is pride. The first thing I want to talk about is this. Pride brings destruction. Pride brings destruction. C.S. Lewis says this, For pride is spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love or contentment or even common sense. Friends, I want you to think about your life the areas and the people that you have the most tension with. And I'm sure if you were to move away all the arguments and kind of get real down to the middle of it, you'd find pride at the center of it. And the Proverbs, it says, where there is strife, there is pride. But wisdom is found in those who take advice. What you see more often in your relationships is that pride will destroy them. You've been there. You've been in the heat of an argument, and you thought you'd been right this whole time, but something comes to light, and you realize, I'm wrong. There you have a moment. I can either say, you know what? You're right. I was wrong. We should have took that turn, right? We should have li- I should have listened to you. My bad. Or you dig your heels in and say, na, 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 to the end we're going, right? Well, you never listen, and you never, right? You have that opportunity to either be proud and resist or be humble and acknowledge a mistake, right? There's those times where the other person was wrong, and you were right, right? And then, you know, you come to see them again, and you have an opportunity. Be humble. Just don't even bring it up. It's not a big deal. You were right. Or... So what do you think about that? You know, like, told you so. You know, just to let you, just, just twist it a little bit, just to let you know I was right. You're wronger. How did that work out for you? Didn't go good? Oh, I wish somebody would have told you that wasn't going to happen. Oh, wait, I did, you know. And you feel this just, it, it, honestly, it's like an itch to scratch. And once it's been scratched, you're like, yes, you know, like, I was right. I did it. Brothers and sisters, that's pride. Now, when somebody has been, when you've been on the other end of that, you're in the argument, you know you're right, they realize, you see the light, bing, when they realize that they're wrong, and they choose to dig in. Are you like, man, this is just the best ever, I'm just having a time in my life. No, you're like, stop being so proud, right? It's okay, you were wrong, it's not a big deal, right? There's those things, or when somebody has come to gloat over you, you know, told you so, you're just like, you know, the mumblings underneath your breath. Next time, I'm going to let you really know how wrong you did, right? When we encounter pride, it severs relationship. It severs uh, a relationship being able to um, move forward and progress because you keep taking steps back in pride. You keep damaging trust. You keep uh, lording it over people. Being loving is not always being right. You know, it's not always sticking it to them and letting them know and letting them show and I'm right and I'm going to show you how right I am. Pride brings destruction. C.S. Lewis says it's spiritual cancer. Where there is pride, love cannot abound. Pride brings destruction. The next thing is pride creates distance. First Peter 5.5 says this, all of you 
Clothe yourselves in humility toward one another because, why? God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. I want that to set down deep with you. God opposes the proud. Life's already hard, right? It's hard enough being a human being in 2020, much less having God oppose your proud heart, right? On top of all of these things, on top of that, oh yeah, God, I'm in opposition towards God. I'm actively working against him when I walk in pride. Brothers and sisters, when we walk in pride, we walk count, contrary to the way of God. The scriptures are clear. God hates pride. Now, I know that's strong language, but that's the language the scripture authors use. God hates pride. Proverbs 16, 5, the Lord detests all the proud of heart. And be sure of this, they will not go unpunished. Pride creates distance in our relationships and distance between us and God. And the next thing is pride perpetuates delusions. Tim Keller says this, spiritual pride is the illusion that we are competent to run our own lives, achieve our own sense of self-worth, and find a purpose big enough, for, big enough to give us meaning in life without God. And I want each of you to answer these questions honestly, because I think sometimes our mind is a little skewed. How many of you chose what country you were born into? How many of you chose what ethnicity you were born into? The gifts that you have, the parents you were given, the socioeconomic class you were raised in, the decade of history you were born into. Anybody? Didn't think so. We are all, we all think, we all need the delusion that we are more in control of our lives than we actually are. And that's pride. There is so much that was just providence or circumstance that you are here. And this is your life. And this is where you find yourself today. And this is, the, you know, the circumstances and the situations that you find yourself in. There is so much in your life that you are dependent on that you have no control over. And so often we think that we can just do things without God. So often we think that we're just like, I'm in control of this, God, don't worry. He's like, yeah, who's holding the universe together? Uh, well, you can do that, you know, but I'm controlling this, yeah? Where you were born, the ethnicity you have, the socioeconomic, any of those things. Well, actually, I didn't control any of those things. Exactly. We are all underneath the delusion that we are far more in control of our lives than we actually are. Look, you were created for a purpose and for a time such as this, but it was to experience life with God, not to create and forge your own destiny or future. Now, the really challenging thing about pride is pride's sneaky, right? It's not super apparent. It kind of sneaks its way in. And so I want to answer the question, what does pride look like? Pride looks like this, self-righteousness or legalism. When you begin to think you're better than everybody else because of the things that you do, that somehow you have this better than trait, you look down on others because of the things that you do. Well, I go to church. Well, I am a Christian. Well, I am X, Y, or Z. You look down on others. That is pride. Pride looks like comparison. Oh, this one's going to hurt. Pride looks like when you're constantly looking to others to measure your own success. When you're saying, well, I'm not as bad as her, and I'm a lot better than him, and looking at the spectrum of things, you know, I'm kind of upper echelon. I mean, I'm not the best of the best, but I'm not them, you know. Comparing, 
constantly looking at each other's lives and comparing who's best and whose kids are better trained and who looks like they have the nicer car or the better house or the whatever, better Instagram, whatever it is, is comparison, and that is pride. Because you're saying, I find my worth, I find my value, and proving that I'm better than others and showing that I'm better than others. False humility. Now, this one's one of my favorites because I think it's the most sneaky. One of the things you hear often, especially like even in the church paradigm, is, you know, somebody in a position like me who comes and gives sermons and stuff like that, after the sermon, someone will come up and say, hey, great job on the sermon. And what I was always told is like, you just say, praise God. You can have no other response than praise God because that's the humble response, right? And I just found that to not be the case at all. Uh, what my response is is no indication of where my heart actually is, right? The most humble thing that I could say is thank you. And people will be like, well, you're getting real proud if you don't want to praise God every single... But here's the reality. If I stand up here and if I give these sermons and I think for somehow that it's all me, you and whatever you say after the sermon has no effect on that, you know? You're not building me up. If I, if I, if I was so insecure that the praises of you or the, or the, or the criticism of you was going to be determine what I do here, then I have no right to be in this role. And honestly, false humility looks like, oh, I'm a worm. I'm just the worst, you know. But what that actually is, is that's actually fishing for praise. When somebody comes to give you a compliment, the humble thing to do is receive it. And you know it. Oh, I like your dress today. Oh, this old thing. I just pulled this out of, you know, the closet. And I haven't worn this in years. You just bought it at TJ Maxx. Stop lying. Right? Or it's, you are just the best at that. Ah. Oh. I just, I don't know, I just, you know, I'm not the best. There's so many other better people than me. No, you really aren't. You mean that, Linda? No, it's not the case. What are you doing? You're fishing for praise. Tell me more. Tell me more about my dress. Tell me more about my fashion. Tell me more about my work ethic. Tell me more, tell me more, tell me more. The humble thing is to say, thank you. Oh, it means a lot when people say that to me. I really appreciate that. The false humble thing is, oh, no, no, no. What? Tell me again. And we do that all the time. And in the church, that's acceptable. Brothers and sisters, that's pride. The next is refusing help. Husbands, you know this all too well. You get the new piece of furniture from Ikea. It comes with instructions. We don't need those. We don't need those. We forged our way out of the primordial goop, right? Built fires, built shelter. I can build this nightstand. And there you are four and a half hours later. Pieces scattered everywhere, at least two things broken, but you say, we didn't need those anyways, right? Because you do not need help, right? Husbands, you've also had this before, probably early on in your marriage. You're trying to, you know, figure something out, and your wife says one phrase, don't worry, I'll just call my dad. <laughs> oh, no, no, this is my house. I fix things in my house. Dad can stay at his house where he does his things. I'm doing it here. Refusing help. We know this all too well, and we do it all the time. Brothers and sisters, that's pride. Look, we were made for community. We were made to do life together. The good thing is I have gifts. You have gifts. You have strengths. I have strengths. I also have weaknesses that are your strengths. And so I can say, hey, dude, I don't know how to do this. You know, I don't know the first thing about this. Can you please come help me? That's being humble. It's being willing enough to admit when you don't know how to do something and humble enough to ask for help. Pride is refusing that help. And you know how that goes. There you are, you got cuts on your hands and a bump on your head and there's things broken everywhere. You're like, well, just go by, I don't wanna, you know. It's like, how did that work out? You could have just used the help that was there. Brothers and sisters, refusing help is pride. 
Being proud also looks like taking advantage of others. Taking advantage of other people's kindness or generosity or love or grace. And you keep taking and taking and taking and taking and never reciprocating. You know these people because they're exhausting to be around. They're always calling, always texting, always, you need to be here, you need to be here, you need to be here. But you ask yourself one simple question. They've never even asked me how I've ever been in the entire history of our friendship. But always when it's them, they're calling, I need your help, I need your help, I need your help. You know? And there's obviously a balance to be had there. Humble people ask for help, but humble people also know boundaries. And they know how to reciprocate help. They know how to bless when they've been blessed. Proud people just take because they think that everybody in the room exists for them. For them to achieve the things that they want to achieve, for them to do the things that they want to do. Taking advantage of others is pride. What also looks like pride is greed. And not just taking what would be good for me, but pride also looks like taking more than what I need just in case. Just in case to other people to go without. Pride looks like entitlement. Well, this is what I deserve. Everyone deserves to, when I walk in the room, people should say hello to me. Don't they know? You know, this is a church, isn't it? And these good people, you could say hello too. One of the things I find so interesting about the dynamic we're in is friendships are really hard, I think, to navigate. And one of the biggest things is everybody wants everybody to be a good friend, but nobody's willing to be a good friend. Everybody always wants the calls, the texts, the birthday wishes, the extra Starbucks gift cards, the sweet little notes, but no one's willing to do any of that. No one's willing to want to put that hard work in because they think that they deserve that. <sighs> Nobody called me for my birthday. Everybody hates me. When was the last time you called somebody for your birthday? Well... I'm busy, you know, and so is everybody else. Pride looks like entitlement. Pride also looks like defensiveness. Somebody comes to share something with you like, hey, man, like, that was really insensitive what you said. <laughs> insensitive? You're just too sensitive. Let me tell you all the ways that you're sensitive. You did this and this and this and this and this and this and this, right? Hey, man, I've, I've been noticing, like, you get angry really quick. Angry really quick. Let me show you how angry, you know. It's like immediately defensive. A proud spirit is one who cannot receive criticism. A humble spirit is one who can. Defensiveness is pride. So as followers of Jesus, and for us to be a creative minority, we must embrace humility. And humility is a grace. The scripture says that God opposes the proud but gives what? Grace to the humble. So what is humility? John Dixon says this, humility is the noble choice to forego your status, deploy your resources, and use your influence for the good of others before yourself. Humility, I would say, is laying down my need to be right, full, first, and in control, and picking up the gift of being loved, dependent, last, and surrendered. I'm gonna repeat that. Humility is laying down my need to be right, full, first, and in control, and picking up the gift of being loved, dependent, last, and surrendered. The first one I want to talk about is being right versus being loved. In our day and age, we are constantly fighting for approval and love and affection and worth, and the way that we do that is by being right right, is by having it and being, and being right and being first and being best and fighting and clawing and scratching. But there's a system in the kingdom of God, you are seen. You are loved. You are heard. You are cared for. And you don't lose your value even when you're wrong. 
even when you blow it and make a mistake. There's all this pressure to be perfect. There's all this pressure to get it right, to pick the right career, to marry the right person, to be in the right place, to do the right thing, to have the right life. To, you know, there's all this pressure, all this weight on our shoulders to do everything right. But that's pride is trying to fight and claw for those things. Humility says, I'm loved. So it doesn't matter where I go. It doesn't matter how these things unfold because I'm loved and I operate out of that first. Not scratching and clawing and fighting my way to the top, but realizing right where I am today in all my brokenness and all my failures, I am loved. Humility looks like receiving that, accepting that, acknowledging those things. The next is being full versus being dependent. In the culture, we're told to just grab as many resources as we can and kind of haul them together for ourselves, right? The prime example of this was when the pandemic first broke out. People went bananas about toilet paper, right? They're like, we're loading up for the apocalypse because the one thing when the world is ending that you need to have is TP, right? That's it, you know, the, the world could be in a nuclear holocaust, but let me tell you what, we can go number two in my house, you know? What is that about? But that shows... That heart posture of just the greed and getting, I need this and this and this and this because my family's not going to go without, but other families now are. So you had 3,624 rolls of toilet paper in your house, but the single mom who was working all day and has two kids that were at daycare and went to the store just needing a couple of rolls to get them to the week had none. That's pride. It's this desire, I'm going to be full and I'm going to have more than enough. And that's kind of, uh, pride is closely associated with gluttony. Because you're worried that somehow there may not be, so you're going to have extra. You're going to put more on there, right? You're going to pack it all on just in case. There's two donuts left. Well, I'm going to take both just in case I'm hungry later instead of just leaving the one for somebody else. Humility looks like I'm going to be dependent. Look, I'm going to take the things that, you know, the things that I need, the things that I have for my life, but ultimately, my life's in God's hands, not in my own. It's not in my ability to scrounge and pull things together and have resources for myself, but it's actually, I live a life dependent on Him. That when I pray, give us today our daily bread, I'm saying, God, I look to you as my provider. The next hard part I want to talk to is being first versus being last, right? What's the famous Ricky Bobby quote? If you ain't first, you're last, right? And is that not the motto? of our world has been the best in being first. I mean, think even about news outlets. They have totally foregone truth just to be first, just to break the story first, you know? Aliens struck down in Nebraska. Actually, it was an asteroid that fell. Well, we reported it first and got six million hits, you know, whatever. They're so obsessed with being first rather than being honest. And this culture is bred in sports, in the workplace, it doesn't matter if you fudge the numbers, you were first. You got there first, the boss saw you first, you made it happen first, you won. Thinking that everything in life is this competition and a race, that integrity and, and sincerity is all tossed out the window, it's all about being first. You know what Jesus says? He didn't say, if you ain't first, you're last. He says, you wanna be first, be last. He says, you, you, you want to achieve things. You want to do things great. He says, the mind of, a, mind of a follower of Jesus is to be a servant of all, to love and to bless, to whenever the buffet line starts at the, at the party, you're not there with your tree in the front line passing the old grandma because you're going to make sure to get, and instead you're saying, no, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, no. It's good. I'll get, I'll get the back. I'll get some food. Don't worry about me. You go. 
right? We know this is hospitality. Can you imagine you went over to someone's birthday party and the host is pushing you back so they can get the food first? It's like, bro, you made it and you got extra in the fridge. Why are you freaking out? But that's a proud heart. As followers of Jesus, we must choose the position of last. And the next is in control versus surrendered. One of the biggest areas of pride I see in the life of followers of Jesus is we so desperately want to be in control. Just give me the reins. Let me drive this thing. We want so bad to be in control. And you know this is because when life gets a little bit chaotic, the people who love control grip the wheel even tighter. And their relationships, they get snippy and hard. And where you been? And where you going? How can you do that? They want all the control. You know, there's people that everything at work has to funnel through them, even if it's not related to their department or what they have going on. Let me see that paperwork. Let me see. No, you didn't do that right. It has to be a B here. No, no, whatever it is, right? Everything has to funnel through them, and their life is chaotic and a mess. They want so desperately to be in control that they are losing control. The hard posture of a follower of Jesus is to live surrendered. There's so many things that are outside of us. There's so many things that are beyond us. If an earthquake struck here, what, would, what could we do? Could we forge the ground together if we were really just in control? No, I mean, we could just go get sucked into the ground right now, you know? A black hole could come, whatever it is. All these things that are outside, not to freak anybody out tonight, people are going to be like, what if a black hole comes? <laughs> but all these things can happen that are just outside of your control. As a follower of Jesus, you live surrendered. Lord, I don't know what tomorrow's bringing. I don't know what this week has. God, I don't know what the rest of this year has. But I live surrendered to you. Now, how do we fight against the spirit of pride and embrace a posture of humility? I'd say one thing. Look up. Notice, at the end of Nebuchadnezzar's, you know, spout with insanity, the first thing it says here is that he looked up. And praise the Most High. For the first time in his life, Nebuchadnezzar stopped looking at himself, stopped looking at the kingdom, stopped looking at his circumstance, stopped looking at the situation. And the first time in his life, he looked up and realized, this whole thing is bigger than me. Have you done that recently? Have you just got away from the TV, got away from the phone, got away from the noise, got away from the chaos, just went outside and looked up? And not like, that's pretty, and then walk away, but really look up. And you start realizing... I'm pretty small. Like, there's a whole universe out there. I on a, I'm on a spinning ball in space with 7 billion people on it. I'm pretty small. And as you start to look up, you think, so much of this stuff is so much bigger than me. And I know that might be a scary thing, but that's a good thing. Because it's how you are humbled. But most importantly, not just looking up to the skies and wonder at God's creation, but looking up to the one who made all of that who speaks and universes come into existence. It's him. And I think this is a word for us followers of Jesus today. We're looking around. We're looking at the situation in the White House. We're looking at the situation in our world. We're looking at all these different things happening, pandemics and all this other stuff. But the one place we're not looking is up. We're not looking to him. We're not humbling ourselves before him and realizing, man, he's above it all. You know, in this kind of chaotic time, I really tried to be present on Instagram, not because I enjoyed being on there, because it was a dumpster fire, if we're honest, but I tried to remind people of perspective, you know, that history has gone on for a really long time. <laughs> Human politics have gone on for a really long time, and guess what? We're still here. 
you know? And so I kept trying to remind people, Jesus is Lord. And people were like, that's insensitive, you know? Don't you care about the political landscape? It's like, of course I care about the political landscape. But more than other things, I care about the kingdom of God. And I'm acknowledging the one who's actually in control. I'm acknowledging the one who actually is seated above all. I'm acknowledging the one who actually has the power to change things. It's him. So as followers of Jesus, we do not look down at our circumstance or situation and think how great it is that we got ourselves here. We don't look around to see how we compare to others. We don't look in to find purpose and calling. We look up and wonder at the life that we have been given. I want to read Psalm 8 for you guys. And if ever you're feeling like you're, you know, the weight of the world is on your shoulders, I want you to read this psalm. Psalm 8. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. And through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars, which you have all set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You have made them rulers over the work of your hands and you put everything under their feet, all the flocks and the herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, and they all swim the paths of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Just as a reminder, brothers and sisters, look up. This is all so much bigger than us. And then take comfort in that, that it's not on your shoulders. It's not all dependent on you and what you do, but man, God is accomplishing his purposes. So that's the first thing. The next thing I think it's important for us to know are these three things. First, authority is given and so we honor it. Part of being a creative minority, part of being humble is acknowledging this. As much as we love it or hate it, authority comes from above. Here clearly in this text, the Lord says, I establish the kingdoms. I establish the kings in order. And this does not mean that God approves or affirms of every person or every action that person makes, right? God anointed David, but David rebelled against God, and so God withdrew his blessing, right? God anointed Saul, Saul rebelled against God, God withdrew his blessing, right? So it's not that God approves of everything that everyone does, or it's not that God elected that person into office, but it's that God honors the position and the authority. And that as followers of Jesus, as people who are living under authority, we are to honor this, even so much so that Jesus, on his way to the cross, John 19, says this, when Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid and went back inside of the palace. This is when Pilate is confronting Jesus. He says, where do you come from, he asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said, don't you realize I have power to either free you or crucify you? Jesus said, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed, over to me, handed, you, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of the greater sin. Jesus reminds Pilate here and now, you only have power because you have been given power. Don't get it mistaken. God honors government. God honors rulers and powers, but every single one of those leaders is responsible for the decisions they make. So key takeaways. One, understand leadership is incredibly hard. One of the most proud things I hear followers of Jesus say now is, what an idiot in the office or whatever. Or I can't believe these numbnuts are leading the country this way, thinking that they themselves could do better. 
thinking that, ah, if I was just in charge here or whatever, right? And then you just start unraveling that a little bit. What would you do about this? And what would you do about this? Yeah, uh, yeah. I'd have to think about it. I'll let you know. You know, it's immediately you find out. You don't know what you're talking about. You just, you think that you're better. You think you're more in control. You think you're smarter than everybody. And even these like political landscape with all the voting and stuff like that. Well, if I was in charge of voting for this country, there'd be no issues. It's like, yeah, really? It's like, your car's not clean. We're supposed to trust you with the voting of the free nation, you know? That's pride. One, leadership is hard. And I don't just mean in a great scape, even at your work. You think, my boss is an idiot. Like, uh, Lord bless them, they're just so dumb. It's so simple. It's A, B, and C. Why can't they see that it's supposed to be this way? But you never understand the decisions a leader makes until you have all the information a leader makes. You know, even in a small church like ours, there are decisions that you guys won't see that happen behind the scenes. That are all these different things, all these different things that we're weighing and we're looking for and we're having all these different moving pieces. You might think, I'm just so dumb. It's that simple, you know. You just fix it like this. And it's like you don't even have all the information to make the best decision possible. So two, pride is thinking that you could do better than the person above you. That's not the case at all. Humility looks to serve and bless and love the leaders that God has before you, including your boss. You might think, I deserve that position. I'm so much better. But even David, when he was anointed king, it took 20 years for him to get to the seat of the king. Why? Because he honored the leader that was already there. He learned, the way king, David learned to be a king was first learning to be a servant. The way God promotes you is through humility. Let us be humble people. And the last thing is, however a leader stewards their power that they have been given, they will be accountable for. And take comfort in that. I know there's circumstances and situations where you feel like, oh, they're really blowing it, <laughs> you know? It's really not going so hot. They are accountable to God, not to you, not to your opinions, not to your criticisms. Your job is to serve, love, and bless. It is God's job to raise them up, to tear them down, and to deal with kings, kingdoms, powers, and authorities. That is his job. Your job is to love, bless, and serve. So, I want to be real clear. Daniel... And any of his, even his hard words, was he ever disrespectful? Was he ever rude? Was he ever cynical? No. He always spoke truth to power, but he was always respectful. And this is the way of a follower of Jesus. We're never afraid to tr speak truth to power. We're never afraid to tell the truth, but we are always respectful of the people and the powers and the authorities in place. The next thing I want to say is this. Character matters, so we value it. Character matters for evaluate. Notice the judgment that God gives to Belshazzar, the second king. He says, you have been weighed on the scales and been found wanting. This is, a, this is a statement about his character. He said, when we weighed out your life, you were lacking. If God were to weigh your life, would you be lacking? As followers of Jesus, being humble as being people of integrity. As being people of truth. The scripture says that men may look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the what? Heart. That matters most. Each one of you have been given uh, an ability to lead. Now, I know you may not be the CEO. I know you may not be the boss, but you have a leadership role in the lives of your friends, the lives of your family, the, the lives of all sorts of people around you, and you might even be a leader at your work. And we can never forget. Waking up now, huh? And we can never forget that as followers of Jesus, our character matters. It matters more than gifting, it matters more than good ideas, and it matters more than charisma. It's character, and it matters. 
And so God holds all leaders accountable to the character they have, and God holds you accountable for the character that you have. The next thing I want to say, and I'm going to invite the worship team up, is this. Influence is powerful, so we are humble with it. Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar had to understand and realize that the decisions that they make had consequences and had real-world impact on the people of the lives that they led. You must understand the same thing. The decisions you make really matter. The things you say really matter. The life you live really matters. And for us to be a creative minority is for us to be humble with our influence, realizing that we have been given such a great responsibility. If you are a parent, I need you to know that the words that you speak over over your children shape their lives. The words you speak over your kids shape their lives. You're always talking. You never listen. You never do this. You never do that. You are forming that child's identity, saying this is who you are. You're loud. You're obnoxious. You're messy. As parents, let us speak better of our children. And let us speak to the potential of who they will be, not who they are today. In your workplace, the way that you speak, the way that you conduct, the way that you live your life has consequences, has meaning. The words you speak shape people. Be mindful of those things. I want to share two stories with you, and then we'll shut it down. I've been talking for too long. Y'all are getting tired, I can tell. Two stories, we'll close it. I remember, I've been a talker my whole life. You guys could probably tell. I've been a talker my whole life. It's a gift and a curse. No, I'm just kidding. But um, my whole life, everyone always acknowledged that I talked a lot. You talk so much. You talk so much. You talk so much. And I remember, like, being on car rides. What's this? And how come that? And how come this? And just my parents just, you know, specifically, you know, I feel bad for my dad. He had it the worst, I feel like, too. But um, I've been a talker my whole life. And that was always prevalent in school. I always wanted to tell jokes. I always wanted to talk. I wanted to do stuff. And most teachers saw that as a burden to bear or a distraction to get around, right? But I had this teacher in the sixth grade, Miss Letter, if you're listening to this, wherever you are, thank you. But she did not see the gift of gab, right, as a burden, but as a gift that God had given me. And so she began to help train me on when to use it. She would give me opportunities and platforms to actually use the voice that God had given me to begin to do things like teaching and instructing and passing out things and stuff like that because she saw that I had the ability within me to be a leader. And it was bored and frustrated with the school system, so she would actually give me opportunities to use my voice and to speak and to talk. And she actually encouraged me to say, Andrew, God's given you a voice and a gift, and I want you to use that in our classroom. So much so that she even like put me up for like the MC of a talent show and all this other stuff. Like she she cared about me in my life and saw that this was a gift in my life, and it wasn't just a distraction for her to have to deal with in her classroom, but it was actually she saw something in me all those years ago. And she validated those things and spoke life over me. And so when I always felt that I was a burden or that I talked too much, she saw in me, God's raising up somebody to use this voice. I think also about, I was a young pastor. I just stepped into pastoral ministry. And I'm at this conference, and there's a pastor there who's just one of my heroes in the faith. And we happened to stay at the same hotel. And so this was totally like a, you know, Jesus, like, sign my Bible. You know, I was like super psyched to meet this person. And so we get in the elevator together, and I'm like, yes, I planned it. I was like, I'm gonna have this. I was like, excuse me, you know, Pastor, you got a second to talk to me? He's like, sure thing, bro, what's going on? I said, I don't want to take much of your time. I know you're a busy guy. I said, just tell me one thing. What's advice you have for a young pastor? And I'll never forget what he said. 
He said, be the pastor God has made you to be, not who everybody else is. He says, there's going to be all sorts of voices in your life that are trying to tell you how to teach, how to be, how to lead. He says, none of them matter. He says, be the person that God has called you to be. And that has been the voice that has shaped my life and my ministry is being the person God has called me to be. For him, it was 30 seconds in an elevator with a 17-year-old kid, you know? But for me, it was life-changing. For her, my teacher, I was just one of 26 other students in her classroom. But for me, that was formative. Brothers and sisters, you have influence. The words that you speak shape worlds. What will you do with them? Will we steward them humbly, acknowledging the great power and authority and responsibility that we've been given? Or will we be foolish and proud and squander the opportunities before us? That's our decision to make. Now, I'm going to ask you to stand. And I believe that right now, God's doing a, a work. One, we've been called out for some areas of pride. We've been called out for some areas of pride. We realize some areas, yeah, totally proud there. And God wants us to repent of those things, to turn from them. And the second thing is you've been made aware of the influence that you have over family, over friends, over coworkers, over teammates, over whatever it is. And you're realizing the authority and the responsibility God's given you and you want to steward it well. And so here are the things I want to do. I want us to first repent of the ways that we've been proud. And secondly, I want us to embrace with humility the authority that God has given us. Jesus, we come before you. Humbled that, Lord, you are the maker of the heavens and the earth. You are all powerful. To see all the new content coming from Zion City, follow us on Instagram or like us on Facebook. And to partner with us financially, visit our website at zioncitychurch.net.